You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today it is my absolute privilege to be able to welcome a guest who has been on my wish list since we first started planning this podcast over two years ago. Justin Gooding is a senior professor at the University of New South Wales, a world-leading researcher in the field of surface chemistry, and an instrumental part of two successful startup companies based on his research, Agamatrix and Inventure Life Sciences. Originally born in Melbourne and trained in the UK, Justin built the majority of his academic career in Sydney, where he has accumulated more accolades than I could possibly list in this introduction. To provide just a few highlights, Justin is a fellow of the Royal Academy of Science, a three-time winner of the Eureka Prize, and the author of over 200 academic publications that have collectively been cited over 30,000 times by his academic peers. But Justin does not take sole credit for this academic success. It's a career he has built in concert with a network of collaborators from disciplines spanning chemistry, biology, medicine, electromaterial science, and microscopy. Chief among these collaborators was his wife and colleague, Katharina Gauss, a German-born scientist who Justin met while he was working at the University of Cambridge, and with whom his personal and professional life has been interwoven ever since. For many in the scientific community, Kat and Justin were a power couple equally matched and equally driven to make a difference in this world through their research. I'll let Justin tell this part of his story, but I am incredibly humbled that he has chosen to share his inspiring and emotional journey with us. Professor Justin Gooding, welcome to Lab Notes. Thanks, Leo. Real pleasure to be here. So our audience has just heard a summary of some of your incredible accolades and for the academics in the audience, your record probably speaks for itself. But for those in the audience who aren't in the field already, is there some way you can summarize your research and the work that you do? Yeah, so what I do in the sort of more scientific sense is I modify surfaces with a high degree of control so that they can interact with biological systems in a well-defined way. And by doing that, I then create new measurement tools. So many people think that's sensors. So I've got a reputation for developing biosensors and we've been involved in the commercialization of one glucose biosensor that's now a company. But um, it also means developing materials that interact with cells in really well-defined ways and then allowing us to measure what the cells do. Some of that work has also been commercialized in the context of a 3D bioprinter for making cell cultures in high throughput. But in general, it's just using molecular level control, the ability to control molecules on the surface to allow us to measure new fundamental or applied phenomena that we're interested in. Great. Thanks, Justin. So we're talking about the interactions between surfaces and cells, and hopefully that's not dumbing it down too much. I'm sure we're going to get back to some of those examples that you listed about science translation and the companies that you've helped launch. But first, can I get a sense of your personal history? I know you grew up in Melbourne. Is there any influences you had in early life that I guess put you on this path towards science and engineering? Yeah, so I'm the black sheep of the family. My parents were both the first generation of our family to go to university, but they both did history and art. 
my sisters are mostly uh, education or nursing. So I don't really know where the science came from, in, except that I always liked science and I always liked, I always liked everything actually at school. And I felt at the time I couldn't decide what to do. And I felt if I did science, I could always go back, at least at the high school level, back into the sort of history, English, arts type disciplines. But if I did those, I couldn't go back to science. And so that was my logic. And from there, I pretty much realised I really liked chemistry and chemistry really made sense to me. And this one thing led to another. There is no concerted plan. It just looks that way in retrospect. (laughs) Well, for a career that I guess began by keeping your options open, it certainly ended up going quite deep into particular fields and you've become one of the preeminent world experts in surface science as a result. Well, maybe, maybe not. But certainly I always thought, yeah, keep keep every door open you can. Also try and make every decision you take, uh, try and get two wins in that decision. So I did a doctorate overseas because I wanted to go overseas and I wanted to do a doctorate. I did want to ask you about that experience of traveling to the UK. So you completed your undergrad in Australia, but in the early 90s, you traveled to England and completed a PhD at Oxford, I think in the labs of Professor Richard Compton. Can you talk to us about what attracted you to studying in the UK and, and how working there shaped your approach to, to life and to science? Yeah, that's a good question. So after I finished my undergraduate degree and my honours, I actually worked in industry for a year and a half for a company that we now know as Orica, but it was ICI Australia then, basically making explosives. Because it was really a company that was doing surface chemistry and that's what I was interested in. And then at some point I realised I wanted to go back and do a doctorate. I wanted that extra depth. And so I went to my former supervisors in Melbourne University and they said, great, when can we have you back? And I said, actually, I want you to help me go overseas. And then um, one of my supervisors said, I know somebody at Cambridge. And all I heard was, you can go and do a PhD in Disneyland. It never occurred to me I could go to such places. And so from there on, I was really only interested in Oxford or Cambridge because suddenly this fantasy land of those mythical universities was open to me. And in the end, I got a position in Oxford, um, as you said, with Richard Compton, who was a very young professor at that time, and now is um, one of the world's great electrochemists and probably the most intelligent person I've ever interacted with. Wow, Justin, I'm sure that title of the most intelligent person you've interacted with is a contested one. I will say, how did that interaction with the Compton Lab shape you as a scientist? You know, electrochemistry and surface chemistry are obviously interrelated. Was that PhD the genesis of your own interest in this field? Yeah, very much so. So I thought I was going to do a surface chemistry PhD because actually in my undergraduate years, the only thing I promised myself was I'd never do electrochemistry. And, you know, we all end up doing something different than we think in our PhD. But I think um, the thing that really influenced the way I think and the way I do science was not so much the time in the lab, but the fact that in in a university like Oxford, you're located in a college. And so in that college, your friends might be doing philosophy or or history, or something completely different to science. Whereas my experience as an undergraduate in Melbourne is you only spoke, you only hang out with the science people. So that was that breadth of knowledge and breadth of different ways of thinking. I think that's really helped me an, all, an awful lot in how I think about my own science now. And, and after you finished your PhD at Oxford, you stayed in the UK for a few more years. You, you did end up at the University of Cambridge doing a postdoctoral fellowship there. And it was around this time you first met a young German scientist by the name of Katharina Gauss, who was taking on a PhD there. We'll have more of this story later on, but 
can I take you back to that time in the 1990s and how you came to work with Kat and I guess how your scientific and personal relationships grew together? Yeah, so um, again, as I said earlier on, a lot of the decisions that I've made in my career uh, look planned but never really were. When I was an undergraduate, I wanted to do biology and I was told there was no um, future in biology, how wrong they got it. Um, but And so then I went and did chemistry and surface chemistry. And when I finished my PhD, I wanted to combine the surface chemistry, the electric chemistry and move towards biology. So I went to an institute of biotechnology and and started do, developing sensors, biosensors in the early days of biosensors. So it brought those three things together beautifully. And it just so happened that one day this... Um, this uh, young woman walked into the lab and said, where is Professor Hall? And I said, indicated where to go. And that was Katerina. Um, it was interesting. I went to Cambridge for a girl, but it wasn't that girl. I left with a different girl. Um, but, you know, we were friends for a long time before other things blossomed. But it was really, she then ended up working in, it, in the same lab, um, doing quite different work. She was doing optical work but had to do surface chemistry work, and so I assisted with that. But I think it was just as friends that we all got on really well with quite a few of us. Actually, the person that started the, the biosensing company in um, in the US, the glucose sensing company, he was also in the lab at the same time and under my direct supervision. So it was just, just a group of people who got on really well. Well, I guess fortunately for Australia, you didn't stay in the UK. You returned back to Sydney actually and took up a position at the University of New South Wales and other than a brief stint at Flinders University you've basically spent the rest of your academic career at UNSW. What was it about UNSW that I guess firstly attracted you back and secondly kept you there for so long as you developed your academic career? Yeah so I mean originally um, again it was serendipitous that I went to UNSW I got a fellowship there so when Katarina and I started going out I'd already decided it was time to come home and that this might be something that I enjoy for the few months I remain in England um, because I figured, you know, many people get trapped overseas if they stay too long. And UNSW offered me a fellowship and then Flinders offered me an, a lectureship and almost as soon as I went, UNSW offered me a lectureship. Um, but I've always felt very fortunate to be a member of that university. It's sort of in a Goldilocks zone in that it's a really well-supported group of eight universities, so plenty of research funds. But for most of my time, it's still been very aspirational. It still wants to be as good as, you know, the Sydneys and Melbournes of the uh, Australian research landscape. And though I think it's a match for them, and in fact, in some ways, it has advantages because it's more aspirational. It's not trying to protect a position. So that's given it a really collaborative can-do culture for a long time. So for me, it's been absolutely fantastic place to be. Um, not all years have been good, but generally the university and the university administration have supported me really well and, and provided infrastructure and financial support to us, allow us to do much more science than we could otherwise. I think we've had great students. I still don't know where I'd go in Australia if I wasn't at UNSW. And I guess with this move, I mean, for you, it was coming home, at least for the sense that it was coming to Australia. But for CAD, it was a new country yet again, from Germany to the UK and then coming to Australia. How did you find that transition with citizenships and permanent residencies and setting up in a new city once again? So actually, for me, coming to Sydney was more foreign than living in England by the time I came, because I'm a Melbourne boy, and Melbourne and Sydney are quite different culturally. But when Katarina got the opportunity to come to Australia, she wanted to have her Australian adventure. So of course, she wanted to come 
to Sydney because it's the that dramatic city, such a geographically beautiful city. And so we were just been exceptionally lucky the whole time. We managed. I got a position back at UNSW. She got a position at the Heart Research Institute at, as it was at the time in Sydney University. And we actually flew into Sydney on the same day. So she finished a PhD, came from England. We met in Bali, helped celebrate the end of her PhD, and then flew back into Sydney and started a new life together. Then she came to UNSW, so that made things even easier. Citizenship was, we were actually, again, exceptionally lucky. We applied for a spousal visa and got it on the same day we applied for it, which is like unheard of. I don't know how we did that. Might have been, we can be a little bit pushy when we want something. Um, And then, of course, citizenship just follows from that. I mean, she's contributed so much to this country that it's a no-brainer that our country should want to have this person as part of them. And in fact, the nice thing about it was that, you know, she was so much an Australian that when we went to do a sabbatical in Germany, we both got Humboldt fellowships to bring foreigners to Germany. And I always liked that because they have a question, why shouldn't you do the German language classes? And she wrote mother tongue. So it was quite nice. Yeah, that's brilliant. And we'll get back to your personal career now, because obviously there's been you know a tremendous depth to that. You, you touched briefly on what your career has been about. You know, as I understand it, it's you know, studying the interaction between cells and surfaces, working on things like biosensors, implantable materials, drug delivery systems, and either helping us to understand how the body works or to treat diseases in promising new new ways. What have been the highlights for you of, of your studies scientifically and I guess the, the advancements you've made in your lab? Yeah, that's a really difficult question because, you know, one wants to list all of them. Um, I think the work that really made my career internationally was when we started integrating carbon nanotubes with enzymes to talk to them electrically. And that work caused a lot of of attention and a lot of people then followed that lead. But I find for me that the works, the more the biological the work got, the more interdisciplinary it got, the more I'm proud of it. So the 3D bioprinter that we've been involved in commercialising, developing the inks that go into the printer and actually now seeing people buy those printers and use them and do more discovery science that we couldn't imagine being able to do ourselves. I, I find that that has been a, a really incredible journey and incredible achievement. I mean, I like publishing papers and I like seeing this group do great work that challenges the way people think about their science. But actually to see companies take that science and, and move it into the you know commercial sector is something that's really very rewarding, you know, something that I don't see happen too often. And I've been fortunate enough to have two of those journeys and currently launching on others of those types of journeys. Yeah, Justin, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that that's one of your personal highlights, because certainly here on the Lab Notes podcast and for me personally, I do really care about that translation journey from fundamental science to companies and products that can actually, I guess, make a difference in people's lives. And I do want to delve into both of those startup journeys you've had so far. You mentioned earlier on in the interview the company Agamatrix, which is the glucose sensing startup that actually began with the work at Cambridge and grew from there. Can you tell us that story first and how Agamatrix came to be? Yeah, so the Agamatrix stories actually started in Cambridge when I was supervising Sridhar under the auspices of my my own supervisor, Elizabeth Hall. Um, And... We had an idea for his, Lisa and I had his idea for his PhD of trying to decouple the the glucose signals from a glucose biosensor from all the interfering signals. 
And then Shridhar liked that, did great work in his PhD, but then realised that he could make it more practical and so launched this company, Agamatrix, and then they needed a lab to do their work in. And by then I was an academic at UNSW and so they did the first experiments at UNSW. So the team came over and were ensconced in my lab for a few months before they got their their, um, first seed funding before going Series A, B, et cetera. Um, And so the, the core principle of that, devices because obviously glucose sensors are well known the core principle was basically not playing with the front end of the sensor like most people were that means the interface with the glucose oxidase but playing with the signals at the back end and using clever signal processing to actually give give a competitive advantage over existing technologies and i think that's something the sensing field has really uh, missed a lot of the time is actually we're so focused on the front end where we put the chemistry and the biology, we forget that you can improve so many things by better signal processing. So I think the field needs more electrical engineers who are thinking that way actually than um, what I've traditionally done. So that was the sort of story. And so then they went and got um, uh, seed funding, established themselves in New Hampshire. I think they started in about 2001. I think the first products came out in about 2007. Now there's millions upon millions upon millions of glucose strips from Agamatrix alone sold every month. They're probably more well-known for one of their technologies and their own company name. They were the first company to integrate a glucose meter with an iPhone. Many people have seen that imagery on the web. And their story is unique also in that, so the Shridhar and the, and the co- other co-founder, Sonny, actually met with Steve Jobs several times to convince him to allow them to use uh, iPhone as a biomedical platform. And I don't know if it's really true, but of course, now the, the, the Apple Watch is a, uses a biomedical platform. There may be a link there, an unknown link, I'm not sure. But I like to think there is. Fair enough. Well, we, we won't delve too much into the practices of Steve Jobs, but I, I think um, that's an interesting story for sure. And I was, I was interested also when you're saying about the signal processing being so important. I think Cochlear would probably second that as well. They've done a tremendous amount of work in signal processing for audio in addition to manufacturing their electrodes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, when you look at their device and what their device has to do, it's just astonishing that it works for so well for so long. And and that's really got it. the signal processing and how they deal with electrical signals. It's got to be absolutely key to that success. So let's move on to the, the second story now, the one that's more recent with InVenture Life Science. You, you mentioned it's about bioprinting and kind of creating cell models. Can you can you talk us through how you were involved in in this company and and where it's at now? Yeah, so Inventia um, was actually I started talking with Inventia when they were just one person, just the 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 CEO and founder Julia Ribeiro, and um, Julia had this vision of he's seen how PCR revolutionised biology. And his uh, vision was, um, well, could could we revolutionise cell biology by taking it out of a manual discipline to a, an automated discipline? And so that's where the 3D bioprinter came in. And he came to us. I was co-director of the Australian Centre for Nanomedicine at the time. And what was attractive to him was that we could do all aspects of the printing in the one place. You know, he had the engineers to develop the printer whereas we could develop the inks and do the basic cell biology. And then with Maria Cavallaris, 
we could do much more sophisticated cancer-directed cell biology. And the other thing is that Maria and I really could see the power of the scientific vision and the strategic advantage that could give us in our own research. So my argument for anybody who wants to deal with industry is don't be interested in the money they'll give you, but be interested in their problem. And if you're interested in the problem, then you'll do great science and, and make a contribution. And hopefully the money that you need to support that will flow if, the, if it is a great problem. And so we basically could see that not only could we develop this printer with the company and be involved in a really exciting journey, but the mere fact of doing that would give us a strategic advantage in some of the sites that we wanted to do. So I wanted to move towards more cell-based diagnostics and, and towards organoid-type technologies, uh, which is a natural lineage of the direction I was going. But how could you make those in high throughput so you could get statistically relevant data? I think that's where the field needs to go. I feel the printer helps us get there. Absolutely. And perhaps could I ask for you to quickly explain organoids, because I know there'll be members of the audience who aren't familiar with that term. Yeah, so that's a good question. So an an organoid, uh, the the loosest uh, definition of an organoid is a three-dimensional arrangement of cells that replicate a, a natural organs, at least in one aspect. So what we do is we make cancer organoids mostly, So we make in vitro replicas of cancers people might have in vivo. And with the printer, what we can do is put in multiple different cell types and replicate different aspects of the cancer biology. And in the case of what I'm doing, see how that then responds to drugs. So in the longer term vision, it would be taking a cancer patient's cells, making in vitro models of that cancer and allow a a clinician to rapidly screen different drug profiles and see how the cancer responds so that they could perhaps tailor your treatment. I I think that's as good a segue as we can have into the next question, but I know it's going to be a a tough one. So I have to thank you for being open and sharing this part of your journey with us. Over the past few years, your your partner in both life and science, Kat, had been fighting a cancer diagnosis of her own. And in March 2021, she tragically passed away at just 48 years old. Now, publicly, the loss of Kat had been, has had a tremendous impact on the scientific community. There was an outpouring of sympathy after her passing and included public honours from you know, your institution at UNSW, but also from the chief scientist from Emble Australia, the journal Nature, and a host of other institutions around Australia and the world. But privately, of course, for yourself and your family and your friends, that loss was all the deeper and all the more personal. Can you tell us, I guess, as much as you're comfortable to share about Kat's illness, her passing, and how you've been managing with the grief and with the adjustment over the past year? Yeah, no, that's a very difficult question. I mean, Kat was a brilliant person as well as a brilliant scientist, you know, very much loved by many people. And in this last year, I probably learned many times about how many other people she helped that I didn't even know about. You know, a lot of people like to complain about the world and wish it could be better. But she was one person that actually did something about it, always. You know, she always believed that she could make the world better. So she was quite an exceptional person and I was the luckiest person in the world because I got to spend 25 years with her. So more than half her life as her life partner. And I think that one of the things I'm most proud of in our careers is that I think we made each other better at what we do scientifically. So my move towards more biological systems, towards organoids, which was actually something that predated her cancer diagnosis, that move was easy to do because I had the confidence of the support of a cell biologist and one of the world's preeminent microscopists. 
And so I think we published over 60, maybe 100 papers together. Um, we had my research operation was quite large, hers was also quite large, but it overlapped. You know, we had a, a subgroup together. Yeah, so her loss has been obviously very hard for me, but very hard for an awful lot of other people. What she did at UNSW, because she thought she could make the world better, always knew she could make the world better. She had this amazing confidence to do it. When we came to UNSW, we had very little light microscopy. She developed a whole light microscope centre that now is the envy of almost any institution in the world, especially when it comes to super resolution light microscopy. And then once she established that to everybody's astonishment, she just gave it to somebody else to run because she said, I'm a builder, not a maintainer. I'll go do the next thing. And then she convinced the university to invest in young people because she felt that it was really hard for young superstars to really get a foothold in the system. And she established the UNSW Embull node, one of the preeminent biological type institutions in the world. We have an Embull node at UNSW in single molecule science. So it's a really nexus between the sort of work I do controlling molecules, but the, her, her work in actually being able to observe them. Her charisma was such that all those people felt untouchable because Kat was untouchable. And I think for many people in science, we were a pretty powerful couple that would also seemed untouchable. And then, you know, we know the probabilities of cancer. Nobody's untouchable. And she got a very rare form of cancer where um, because it was so rare that it wasn't clear how to treat it and it was super aggressive. So it was eight months from diagnosis to her passing, which is actually just over one year ago, one year ago and one week. And so even though I already had a research program to try and give clinicians better information to allow them to treat better, to treat cancers with more more knowledge, because what you learn when you have a somebody in your life that has cancer is that the clinicians are absolutely doing everything they can, but they've got no information. They get every few weeks some black and white grainy image and they think, has it got bigger or smaller? And they're trying to attack the cancer with molecular tools, but they don't have any molecular information. And so that's what I was already trying to give them, trying to develop sensing tools for what's called the liquid biopsy concept where you detect blood markers. That's hard enough to do alone, but there's a second problem with the liquid biopsy concept in that you need to know what that information means. And so that's what we're trying to do with connecting the sensors with the organoids. And though that was already a vision, and she, she helped me write that vision, I never knew at the time how important that vision really was. Absolutely, Justin, and thank you for sharing that story. I guess, like many people, I was quite worried about reaching out to you and, and broaching these topics. But one of the things that, that made me do it was I actually heard you call into a BBC program called Crowd Science and asked some questions about grief that really got me thinking. You, you said that it was, in your observation, quite interesting that a lot of people came around and kind of rallied around you and supported you at the time uh, when Kat had passed, but that that kind of faded over time or the way people interacted with you wasn't always helpful. Can you talk us a bit about your experience with grief and, and with the way that people have tried to support you through this? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I should say that I've been incredibly well supported by an incredibly large number of people that loved Kat and loved me. But that crowd science episode, what I talked to them about was the fact that despite all these people that love you, people start to get worried about asking you how you're going and how you're traveling. Sometimes I think that's because they just want you to be better. 
Sometimes I think that's because they don't want you to get embarrassed if you get upset. But the implication can be it can be quite isolating. So my advice to anybody who's got someone that's dealing with grief and loss, and that doesn't have to be, you know, doesn't have to be death. I think um, we tend to forget that, say, uh, breakups of long-term relationships is, is a grief event as well. But my advice is to always ask how someone's traveling in a gentle way, in a way that they can choose to answer it or not. It's actually not ever the questioner's decision whether someone answers a question or not. It's actually the person who's been asked the question. But I think if you say, how are you? Well, that's that's a throwaway line that doesn't mean anything. You know, that's what you get when you go into a department store. Um, I mean, if you ask, you know, how are you feeling about things or how is recent events, you know, like so people now ask me at the moment, we've just gone past the one-year anniversary, how am I feeling about that? Those sort of gentle questions where I can say, you know, I can actually divulge the information or I can choose to just say, you yeah, know, it's, it's okay, I'm doing okay. I feel that that's a really something that we should all do more of because you stop people who are grieving feeling isolated. Well, well, thanks for that, Justin. Some very poignant advice and hopefully it helps some people out there. I will also include in the description to this episode links to mental health care support. So if anybody needs to contact those services, we strongly encourage you to do so and to also reach out to your family and friends as Justin is suggesting. For the purpose of this interview, I want to move on to one, I guess, related topic, Justin. I think with Kat's passing, it's almost inevitable that we start to think about her scientific legacy and then by extension, scientific legacies more generally. How has this experience shaped the way that you view your scientific achievements and the legacy that you are leaving in this industry and through your work? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure I've got a good answer. I mean, the the normal answer people give is that the legacy they leave is the people they train. And obviously, both Kat and myself deeply loved and cared about the people that we train, and we still do. But I think um, for me personally, you know, as you, you mentioned in the introduction, I, I've had a fair few accolades in my career. It's sometimes a little bit embarrassing to admit, but, you know, you get hooked on that, right? That's that's quite, they're quite nice, but they're not very important, really. And I suppose in these last years of my, I'm actually evaluating this year, it's one of my goals for this year to evaluate how I do work for the next 10 years, what my goals are. But I'm thinking very much about doing science that is no longer so focused on papers, though papers are important for the members of your team, but is much more focused on actually changing the way people do things. The legacy I would like to leave would be a scientific legacy as well as a, a human resources or a people legacy. But that scientific legacy, I've been very privileged in my career and I've been very privileged to be very well supported. And I feel that that's what the country should expect of me. Well, I'm not sure if Australia should expect any more from you, Justin, but we're certainly glad to hear that you're willing to give it. And I do want to ask about your accolades one more time, and in particular, the Eureka Prizes. And for those international viewers who don't know, the Eureka Prizes are one of Australia's top awards for scientific achievements. And Justin would have to be one of the few Australians to have won three of them. You mentioned in the lead up to this interview that the one that you're most proud of was the 2017 Award for Mentoring. Can I ask why you picked that one as your, as your favorite and what your approach is to mentoring young students and early career researchers who come through your labs? 
Yeah, so I, I, I'm the most proud of that in, um, because it is about people. And, you know, when you become a successful scientist, the system tries to drag you away from the thing that got you there, which is your ability to build teams and inspire the people you're working with to do great science. And the system tries to pull you away. And I, I when that was happening, then I started seeking to win fellowships so I could gain more control so I wasn't pulled away from the thing I really love, which is working with the people at the bench. I mean, I'm obviously not very good at the bench anymore, but there's nothing more exciting than seeing someone who's full of hopes and dreams, who really wants to make a difference, seeing them get some good results that really inspires them. And that really frames my approach to supervision. I think as a PhD supervisor, what you get is this young, optimistic person full of hopes and dreams. And if you can keep that in them by the time they finish, I think you've done a great job. And so often that could mean just getting out of their way. A lot of the time it's just enabling them, validating how they're going, making them feel they're achieving. But I think supervision is a very personal thing. So personal in that you have to adapt your supervision to every individual person you work with. Um, So I usually spend a bit of time trying to work out who they are, what makes them tick, so I know how to allow them to be what I would say is the best version of themselves. I also think PhD supervision is quite interesting because it's actually the time when someone transitions from being a child to an adult. I know we all like to think we do that transition at 18, but my experience is it happens around the mid-20s and that's when we are doing PhDs. And so I think it's a great privilege that you get to work with some really impressive people and maybe you can help them think about the world around them as, as well as just their science and hopefully make them be better people. I think what I'd like your listeners to focus on was the language I used there. It was it was always inclusionist language. It was never, I do this, you know, it's our journey together as a PhD student and me. We work together. We do science together. These things are, are community things where individual people at the end get accolades. And so when you talk about a big prize like the Eureka Prize for Mentorship, well, that's a prize for the whole group. That's a prize for, for what everybody did in the group. Um, and all the work that for all the people that have passed through the group and all the people that have worked with us. So that's why I'm proud of it, because it's a statement, of a prize that goes to everybody. That's a wonderful answer, Justin. And I have one final question for you, which certainly ties into what we were just talking about. I want to ask about the advice that you give to PhD students and early career researchers who are working with you about how to structure their careers and their topic choices and the way that they work to ensure that they can have an impactful career like you have had? Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's going to be a little bit of a cliched response here. I think that following your passions is really important, the things you're really interested in. I think that in this modern world where we've got so much metrics and so much evaluation, we can be sucked into chasing the numbers and, and chasing what's hot. And though those the metrics and the rules of the game are important, they shouldn't take away from the big picture, and the big picture is doing great science. And it's true in an academic sector that the chances of you getting that academic position and then being an academic that's well-funded, the probability there is small. So my advice is think of something, a problem that you think is important to solve that's a big problem, and if that's something that inspires you, I'd go for that. And try and think again about having double wins and everything. Um, So, you know, you've got to do teaching, well, let's teach well because then those students might join your research group. If you want to, you know, work in a given biological area and you've got a chemistry background, think about how your molecular background can 
help you make a contribution in that area and find the niche that's unique to you. You're never going to be ahead of the game if you're following trends, I suppose, is the takeaway. Well, Justin, it's been an inspiring as well as an important conversation. And I have to thank you again for your openness today. Thank you so much for being part of the Lab Notes podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Leah. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalog for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now. So until next time, keep inventing.